If you got a Bible, go and open up. We'll be in Psalm 126 today. Psalm 126. Just ask you guys to pray with me. Jesus, thank you so much for the space that you've given us to gather here tonight. Uh, as we hear from your spirit, from a song that's been sung by your people for uh, over three, four thousand years. Uh, would these words echo deeply in our hearts and in our souls? Uh, would they be the sort of words that stay ringing in our ears that we don't quite get the melody? Would the truth of these continue to find its way down deep into our lives? Uh, God, will we be forever marked by the work that you're doing in our midst here tonight and as we go out from this space? And so we ask that you would speak for your servants are listening. I was 18 years old, and it was my uh, first like big boy trip to Hawaii. I've been to Maui and Kauai a few, few times. I know that sounds spoiled. Uh, my uncle lived there on Maui, and my dad had friends that lived on Kauai. And so we would get to go to those spaces and then carve off the most expensive parts, like rental houses and rental cars, and stay with people. And so this was the first trip that I had saved up for. I had just graduated high school, so I knew everything, and I would saved my dollars, and I was good to go. We were on the island of Hawaii, surfing some of the most powerful waves I'd ever surfed in my life, which was incredible, as long as you stayed above the water. Uh, when you wipe out in really powerful surf, though, it does something even more profound to you. You feel like your body goes through a washing machine. And so there's different degrees of that, but take what you experience in San Diego or Rocky Point on a interesting day, uh, and exponentially multiply that, and that's the power of the water and the waves in Hawaii. It's, it's different. And so we were out surfing, and I was making about 50% of the drop-ins because it was really steep. That's the point when you're uh, catching the wave where you see people pop up. If you've ever tried to surf, that's a pretty precarious space uh, because all your balance is shifting from your hands to your feet while the waves go downhill, and that's just a pretty special place to be. And so I was making about 50% of the drop-ins, which I was cool with. Again, I was 18. I wasn't thinking about drowning. Uh, I wasn't recognizing how shark-infested the waters actually are. It was just a good time. But on one particular wipeout, I had gone in, I paddled in, uh, the older guy that was sitting in the lineup, which is uh, where everybody sits out in the water, he was sitting a little further than me, and he just turned around and paddled out, and I was like, oh, he's giving me the wave. That was in fact not what he was doing. I should have also passed on this wave. Uh, but I jumped on it, and I went to push up, and immediately just got smashed down in the water. Caught that full-on washing machine cycle, spinning around and around. And so I'm gasping for air, right? Like my breath, you feel like you're going to lose it. You're actually not going to lose your air at the time you think you do. Uh, but I look up in the water, which is salt water, which is a lovely feeling in your eyes. But you can see where it's light. And so I start swimming up for where it's light. And I get up just in time for another wave to crash down on my head. I breathed in that lovely foam that isn't quite air, but it's not quite water. And so it's not at all fulfilling for your lungs. But then go right back through the washing machine cycle. And this time, I really feel like I'm starting to think like, oh, like you don't breathe long enough and bad things happen. And so I swim as hard as I can. And I'm swimming and swimming and swimming. And I crash head first into the sand. Now, you don't have to be an oceanographer. But what's on the top of the water? Air. What's on the bottom of the ocean? Sand. 
I had literally swam as hard as I could, as far as I could, and went face first into the sand. I was so disoriented by the waves of the water that were swirling around that I went exactly the wrong direction. Now let me tell you, to this point in my life, I had been on thousands of waves. I had been in the ocean thousands of times. But on this particular day, in this particular moment, with this particular set of circumstances, I swam exactly the wrong direction. The good news is, in case you're wondering, I made it. I know you guys are worried about that one. I saw you leaning in, you resolution in the story. Uh, I was able to kick off the ground, and then you make it to the top a whole lot quicker. And I actually had a mark on my forehead from when I went face first into the sand. And after a few minutes of building for air, uh, it was one of those stories that you can tell and laugh at. Uh, why do I share this? I share this because this Psalm, Psalm 126, is for those of us who find ourselves gulping for air, who may be uh, disillusioned or disoriented, possibly disappointed, maybe discouraged, maybe even doubting. And what you thought you would never experience, what you thought you'd never do, like, I know which way to go when I get in trouble. Up is air, down is ground, you go up. Maybe, just maybe, you will find yourself in a season, whether right now or one day, where you actually don't know which way to go because it's so disturbing. And the words of the psalm are calling out, and it's for those of us when we find that life punches us in the gut right after we felt like it just punched us in the gut. Uh, it's when one wave is crashing on our heads just when we thought we were coming out of the last wave crashing on our head. And it's a psalm that invites us back into finding our place in God's story, remembering and looking on with hope. Uh, the psalm that we're about to read, 126, is uh, most of your Bibles may have at the top, it says a psalm of ascent. And so these were psalms that the people of God uh, in the most probably unsanctimonious way. This is how the people of God would pregame on their way to the festivals. Uh, they would, on the way to the festivals, have these songs that they would sing that would remind them of why they were going, where they were going, what God was doing in this place, where they found themselves as the people of God. And as a corporate group, they would come together and on their way to these festivals, they would sing these songs. The song that we're going to talk about tonight, 126, is the seventh in the series of Ascent Songs, which if you uh, track the biblical numbers at all, that's a number of perfection. So I figure if we're doing one song tonight, we'll do the perfect song of Ascent. But this is what they would do to reorient themselves as they had been out in the world together as the people of God, coming back to a festival to remember something specific about God, to reorient, they would sing these songs. And so if you have it, go ahead and read. I'll read out loud. You can read just in your brains. I have to be clear about that sometimes. It's a beautiful echo. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Uh, this first part of the song, take a break there, look up. This first part is the people of God looking back to when God had brought them back to his land. 
Now, if you are the kind of person that reads in commentaries, uh, commentators, uh, those that write those things, those big books, have a million different perspectives on what exactly this period of time they're talking about is. Uh, and if this was a lecture on the psalm, I might have spent a little bit more time and given you all the options. Here's what I want you to know as, as a community here tonight. The people of God were looking back at a time and a moment where they had a, a profound experience with the rescue and release of God. There had been a moment where they had been far off, they had been out of the land, they had been away from all things of what they experienced with God in proximity, and in a moment, God had brought them back. And they said, in that moment, it was like a dream too good to be true. It, it was a moment where we experienced rescue and reconciliation and redemption and being replaced back into God's story in a way that was incredible, and it was almost like a foggy dream. It was almost too good to be true. Our mouths couldn't stop smiling. Our voices couldn't stop laughing. Even the other nations who want nothing to do with God looked in and said, the Lord has done great things for these people. Like, there's no arguing about that. And so this psalm is for people who have had a profound experience with God. Who have had a time when they look back and recognize and realize the rescue of God is real. The redemption of God is real. The reconciling work that he can do between people is real. The provision that he provides is real. The way that he comes in and heals things holy is real. The way that he can take addictions and break them is real. The way that he can take displaced people and give them a home, that's real. The way that he can take health crisis and turn them away and bring healing, that's real. Like they're looking at that time when they would say, man, we knew without a doubt that this covenant-keeping, saving, rescuing God works. And our minds were blown away. Our lips were filled with praise. Our hearts were filled with joy. Our minds were swirling. It was too good to be true. It's an experience, undoubted, undeniable movement of the Spirit. But then the song goes on, and there's, there's a new tone that's introduced. It's a prayer of petition, that the situation that they now found themselves in was different than that moment when they'd been delivered. And they're praying and asking, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. I've been sitting with this psalm for the last few months. Uh, and the way I think it works for the people of God is it works as those anchors would hold a mountain climber uh, as she climbs up the mountain. Uh, as you climb up a mountain, uh, most people don't free climb. I know there's some Netflix videos that have free solo, the guy that just does it all, and then you zoom back and you're like, that guy's crazy. Everybody else that's climbing with him, which is like a team of 20, are all clipped in. Um, and so we're not the Lone Ranger that's going off without clipping. But these things, you watch as people take care of readers and just clip themselves in to anchor points on the rock because what they're doing is so far out on the edge that if they were to fall, they need something to catch them. And so I think what, what the psalmist is using this psalm as is as one of those anchor points for the people of God that as they're following God out into a wounded world, as they are feeling weary, as they find their grip slipping, there is an anchor point that holds them to the face of the mountain even when they let go because this still remains true and this will catch them. 
And so they'd sing this song to remember. And for us as a community, I want us to look at it and recognize it would do the same for us. The people go from an experience of the deliverance and this delight in all that God has done to crying out for him to do it again. That picture of streams in the Negev, that is an area that's extremely dry. And the only time that there's water in there is when there's a deluge of rain. And all of a sudden, the wadis, which is what they're called, that's a technical term, but it's also what Laura calls these dry riverbeds that only have water in them in a certain season of the year. That only have water in them when water falls from somewhere else. It doesn't naturally keep going on its own. They're praying for the provision of God, the bounty of God, the delight of God in the driest places they can imagine. And they just want it to be poured out again. As I'm sitting with this, the question that rolls through my mind right is, man, where are those spots where it's just so dry and I just need God to again pour out his blessing? Because these people were aware of when that rain fell, then these rivers rushed. And it was a surprise, and it happened suddenly, but it was plentiful when it came from God. And so they're praying and asking for that provision. But then they're also called into something in the meantime. Uh, they're called to do something with their tears, which is crazy. Uh, they're called to take their tears as they feel them and not shove them down like many a Christian has been taught. You're supposed to be a good little soldier for Jesus. Uh, you're supposed to be a great little disciple-making disciple. You're not supposed to ever face hardships with tears because that means you don't trust. That's not what the psalmist teaches. The psalmist says you take those tears, you take those grieving, and you go out with them as if with seeds and sow them. And I don't know all that this metaphor means, but as I reflected on it, there was at least two things. A first, that it is a common experience of the people of God to weep in this wounded world. That's a common experience. That as the people of God face disappointment or disillusionment or a longing for God to act again in spaces when he's not yet working, that we can see. All those words are important. In spaces where God's not yet working in ways that we can see. That there is a prayer of the people of God that brings those tears with them. And there is a promise that as you go out with those tears, still sowing, that you will return with a harvest. We miss something about this uh, imagery because if you guys want to get seeds for anything, where do you go? Any garden store, right? Like you can stop on the way home, you can stop at the Home Depot, you can stop at Target for goodness sake, you can start at Walmart, if you're boycotting Target, um, then you can stop at Walmart. If you want to stop at any garden store that's open, uh, whatever you're doing, you stop somewhere and you can pick up seeds and you're right, it's just so easy to get seeds. Uh, for a farmer in this time, you did not have seeds wherever you wanted. Basically, what you would do each year is you would go all in with the money that you had to buy seeds, to sow them, and not know what would happen next. But you just threw those seeds out there and again planted them and prayed like crazy that God would provide. Because you had years when nothing grew and you had years when plenty grew. And so sowing of seeds was always a risk. I don't know what happens next. And the psalmist is using this imagery, this agricultural imagery, to let them know 
When you're following as the people of God and mourning and crying, that will be met with God's presence and there will be rejoicing again. And so as the people of God, the two anchor points that I think the psalm invites us in is to remember, remember the mighty acts of God, but then also be a people of hope that look forward that one day what Jesus promised will still come true. These people leaned and longed into that. In their minds, when they returned, most likely from where they were cast off to, they thought this was the time when God was finally going to do what he said he would do and do a new thing. Like you read it in Isaiah, I'm doing a new thing. They didn't know the acts of the story that were still yet to come. And so when they entered back into the promised land, and it was just as broken as when they went before, and they were just as broken as when they went before, it would bring some disillusionment. Uh, maybe some of us, as we have followed Jesus, we've had experiences that were very profound. Moments when we undoubtedly knew that the grace of Jesus was real, that the power of God was real, that the provision financially or medically, that God does these things. But then we find ourselves in a new circumstance where we wonder, but, but does he? And those doubts creep in. The psalmist is giving us somewhere to go with those. And in the last few minutes that we have, I'm going to give us a chance to do the work that the psalmist did in his time or her time and allow us to be able to uh, enter into some of these things again. And so what I want you to do, uh, the first one we'll do with a little group of people around us, and then we'll do the next two on our own. But one of the, the ways that God has given us to remember and then look forward with hope is to ask the question, where do we see God's mighty, redeeming, rescuing, reconciling work in the true story? So we don't believe the Bible just gives a list of ideas. We don't believe that it is a list of un. Uh, interesting stories, that this tells the true story of the world, that it gives us a timeline right from creation all the way through to the restoration. Uh, we believe that in every act of the story, God is at work. And so what I want you to do is just turn to a few people around you. I'm going to give you like 60 seconds. So if you haven't spent any time in the Bible, just listen to your friends that you're around. If you have spent time in the Bible, you should be able to list off at least one thing that you saw God do in this book. Sound good? So go ahead uh, and just take a few seconds, turn towards one another. Uh, where do you see, what are stories that come to mind where you see God's mighty, reconciling, redeeming, restoring work in the different acts of the story of God? Ready? Go. One of the ways that we do this is looking back at the big story of God and seeing His faithfulness. Another way that we can do it is by looking into the story of our communities. And so uh, if you're newer to the Missio community, you're welcome to listen to other people. Um, if you have a story from your own community, you're welcome to share it. But let me uh, ask it this way. So communally, where have you seen God's mighty, rescuing, redeeming, reconciling work in Missio's story as you've been a part of it? So think your Missio community. Uh, think the friends and the network of people that you have around you. But where have you seen him at work through the people that make up this group of disciples? Um, take a second to think about that. And then turn back towards your friends, and I'll give you another minute or two to think through an answer. Where have you seen that on display in this community in the past? And one of the things we prayed for you before we started the gathering is that the Spirit would bring things to mind as we think back with remembrance. So I'm going to invite you and trust that He's going to do that work. Turn back to your few friends. Where have you seen His faithfulness and His power on display through this people? Third area to ask this over. 
And I'll invite you, because uh, this is the one that will most likely linger a little bit more for you. And we're not going to turn towards our friends with this one. But I'd encourage you to process even as you're heading out of this space. To think through where in your story. So not just the story of God as grand and as glorious as it is. Uh, not just the story of this community where you watch grace on display through the lives of others. But where in your story have you seen that same saving, reconciling, powering might at work? Those moments in our history are meant to give us anchors to look back as sure as we do at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, to look at how that death and that resurrection have freed us, and it's meant to fuel us as we continue to live this life following Jesus. So maybe another way to ask that same question is to be personal and say, are there places where God's inviting you to keep sowing in tears with remembrance and hope. I think many of us have experienced the power of God on display at different moments. And I know looking out in this room, many of us are in a moment now where more there's been markings of disappointment or disillusionment or some doubt and some distraction from what God's invited us into. There's been circumstances outside that have us tumbling. Uh, whether that's a doctor's diagnosis or the failure of a friend or the betrayal of a co-worker or the loss of a job or a sickness coming back that you thought was gone or a leader who you trusted disappointing you. There are stories littered throughout this room of how in some degree or another many of us have been experiencing the spin cycle of life in a wounded world. That's why this psalm so beautifully calls us back with these anchor points to look back and remember all that God has done in history, in this community, in your life. And then keep going. Take those tears that you feel and sow them with faith that the same God who was at work back then in all those stories is still at work right now. And that risk that comes with continuing to sow seeds in tears, the promise of God is that you will one day walk back with sheaves, that's bundles of crops in your arms, with joy again. And here's the thing, as a friend, I wish I could tell you, as a pastor, I wish I could tell you that the proper time for a plant to grow and watered with tears is like two hours. Right? So like, like cry, like feel the grief, and then all of a sudden, out miraculously, like a Dr. Seuss book, out will pop a plant in like two hours. So if you'll just walk in this way of faith and weeping and mourning and grieving and lost but still following and declaring the glory of God while still feeling doubt, if you would just do that for like two hours, then the plants will grow, then you collect it all and you walk on your merry way. Unfortunately, the timetable all throughout the story of God is much longer than that. And so tonight's encouragement is to, yes, look back with faith. Yes, to look forward with hope. But in the meantime, you're going to walk in some tension of feeling grief and mourning and loss and hurt and pain. And I can't tell you how long that season lasts. But I can tell you with absolute certainty that one day it will end. I don't know if your grieving ends the day that Jesus returns to restore all things. 
But I can tell you that final act of the story, that last down arrow, tells us that one day there is no more tears in any eyes and they get wiped away. And I can tell you that the markings of that final feast with Jesus is joy declared in every language that wraps up all the loss and all the suffering and all the sacrifice and all the grieving into something more grand than we can ever imagine. But I don't know that you experienced that tonight or tomorrow or in two years. But I can say all throughout the story of God, the women and the men and the children have decided that this is worth staking their lives on and walking with Jesus even through the wilderness periods. That not one of them were disappointed at the end of the story. And that's what we lock and lodge our hope in. That is the anchor point for us that cliffs us to this mountain and the journey that we're on. Remembering all that he has done, looking forward with hope that we all will do, and clipping into the next point in front of us. And that's the invitation I make from the psalm. And water and waves and wheat and sheaves of crops and rock mountains, pictures. The imagery of as we come, would that be the story of our lives that we are people shaped in this way who remember and look forward with hope because the world that we're sent into can be really tough, can be marked by loss, will be marked by sadness and sickness and disappointments and failures and frustrations. But as a community whose faith is lodged in Jesus, we can look forward with our final hope. And so that's why we come back to the table every single week. These elements that are on the table remind us of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. Uh, as we take that bread, it reminds us that his body was broken for us. Tangible, physical, at a fixed point in time, this happened. And the, the cup reminds us of his blood that was poured out, making a new covenant, one which was eternal in nature, that God will not fail. He has never in the past, and he will never in the future. We can look forward for hope. And so what we enter into every time that we take the table is the practice that we just did, looking back at what God has done, looking around at what he is doing, and looking forward with hope. Every time we come to the table, we do all three of those. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite us to the table as a community. But Jesus, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing in us. We are grateful for the small ways we participate in what you're doing through us. God, I pray that as my friends and I just even think back and look, would you bring things to mind and remind us of the times you provide, the things that have slipped our memory that were so significant at the time. Would you bring those back in waves over the next week? Would we remember stories that we've long since forgotten of your faithfulness? And God, for those of us that are in grief that feel like this is more of a season of sowing, would, in tears, would our hearts be awakened to the reality that you face and walked into your soul we could be set free? Would our hearts be set afire again? Would it be like a river running through a desert that is sudden and surprising, but every bit is much refreshing? And God, we believe you to be those things. And so as a community, we pray that you will bring your blessing like a river through a desert space. Would you do what you've done in the past and do it again in the areas of our lives where we're struggling to believe you could possibly be the same God that 
that we read about the story, what we've experienced in the past. Would you do that work that only you can do in bringing those parts, our parts, back to a place of wonder and worship, even as we need? And we ask this in the name of Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.